Good. There's some people that are alive there. Some people are, you know, still in bed, but that's okay. You can sleep in church. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm so glad to see you. It is great to be together. Uh, I see a lot of new faces coming in this morning, which is always one of my favorite things at church. So I just want to let you know, if you are newer with us and you're looking to learn a little bit more about us, I would love to meet you, chat with you, hear your story, what's brought you in. Uh, and I would love for you to stop by our welcome desk as well, because at our welcome desk, we've got a gift for you. Uh, that you can take home. It's not an extravagant gift, but I think it's a very uh, useful gift. So make sure that you stop by and grab that up. Uh, But just want to let you know, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, At the heart of our church, we are a place, we always say these three things. We want to be a place where we can experience God's grace together, where we can grow in our faith together, and we can be challenged by God to make an impact right where we are. Uh, And so joining us this morning, coming together as a body of believers This is the best place to be. I know for my soul, hopefully for you as well. Uh, I want to share just a couple of things that are going on in our church to uh, invite you to join in on us with. Uh, The first is here in February, uh, I'm going to be starting a group here at the church on Thursday evenings uh, that we're calling Insight. And the idea of this group is really to just spend some time reading something that gives us insight into who God is, who we are, and our world around us. Uh, And so we're going to start that by reading through the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, this is a really, really great book, but I imagine that there's more than one of you out there that has attempted to look at a C.S. Lewis book before and thought, you know what? It's not for me. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. One of the reasons we're doing this group is because I have often felt like that. When there's some, there's some area that I wanted to grow in my faith, I wanted to read something, sometimes it can be a little challenging. It's always better to read in community, so I'd love for you to come. We were originally going to do this for just guys, but there's been so much interest. It is open to all, uh, so please, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Let's be honest, it was because if I didn't start with the guys, no one would come. It would just be all ladies. So, uh, But if you want to join in on that, we have a link to register for it just so that we know who's coming. You can do that at our welcome desk, or you can scan the uh, QR code on your bulletin as well. That'll help you grab that. Last thing that I want to mention is next Friday, we do one of my favorite things here at church. We're having game night. It's open to anyone to come along. Uh, we just have a great night, having some fun, playing a variety of different games, and it's a great chance to get to know people. I know one of the hardest things at church is you can come in on a Sunday and you're not necessarily sure how to greet new people, meet new people. Game night is a really good way just to hang out, have some fun, and meet some new faces. Because at the heart behind that, we want to be a church that knows one another, does life together. I want to invite you to stand with me now as we go into worship. Uh, One of the the most important things we can do at church on a Sunday is to let our heart get recentered on who Christ is. That's why we come together, to remind ourselves of the gospel message, that in Christ, God the Father has loved us. He has given himself for us, so that in our sin, our feelings, our brokenness, there is a way to find redemption and hope, to come and to know God, to walk with him, to be loved by him. And our hope is not that we would be great people, but that he was a great God who has loved us and given himself for us. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into worship. Father God, thank you for this chance to gather as your people. God, I thank you for each and every one sitting in the seats here this morning. Lord, that you have called them by your grace to come and hear the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning we would know you better, that we would love you in some small way in the way that you have loved us. And Lord, that you would transform us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was uh, like five or six years old, I told my adopted parents, I told them that, you know, I don't need any friends and I'm not gonna make any friends because I, you know, I didn't want to get hurt. Hi, 
Hi, I'm Jen Lindsay. I've been serving for Royal Family Kids Camp for 20 years. Royal Family Kids is a camp for kids in foster care, usually in at-risk homes. A lot of kids in the foster care system have trust issues, have issues um, bonding with other people. A lot of that has to do with moving from home to home. It has to do with abuse that they've experienced. My parents weren't able to take care of me around the age of three, three and a half. I got sent out to the foster care system and I went through you know, a series of four or five different families before I found the family I'm with now. So I was in the foster care system from the ages of three to eight and I was a part of Royal Family Kids Camp from you know the earliest you can go, five years old till all the way throughout high school. Something I really enjoyed about the camp was the relationships you build with the counselors. Um, you know, you have all these fun activities. You go to the lake, uh, go fishing, go canoeing, spend, spend the day at the beach, whatever it is. But um, all that stuff was fun, but the most impactful part for me was definitely the relationship I ended up having with some of these counselors and like I felt like I was a valuable person. I felt like I was loved by these people and I just felt like they were just my family and they were my friends. I could tell that these people were people that I trusted and I could tell that they were people that cared for me. After I wasn't able to come to the camps anymore I was like well, I need to go as a counselor just you know, to make the same impact to these kids that the counselors then made on me. A lot of our counselors that were campers, that's one of the reasons they come back. They're like, camp was my consistent place in my life. No matter what happened in my life, I knew that I had camp. And now that I'm an adult, I want to do the same for someone else. I want to show them that no matter what happens in their lives, that there's camp. You know, I'm just trying to be, be a light to them and I'm trying to like show them the true hope. Um, through the gospel. Every camp of Royal Family, we do something called I Saw God. So at the end of camp, we say, who saw God today? And we go around and kids share stories of the day and how they saw God. So it's kind of a twofold to show them that God has been in every single aspect of camp and in their lives. A time to reflect on what they've been doing at camp and just a way to show all the goodness that God has in their lives. I think sometimes, especially for these kids, they have a hard time seeing the good. That's why we send home the photo album, so that when they are at home and they're in, going through rough times, they can remember the positive memories that we provided for them, but also know that camp is coming again. Out of Royal Family Kids Camp. It's one, I think, one of the greatest gifts that God has given our church to be in partnership with this ministry. It's not something that uh, Chapel Street started. This is its own ministry. It's important to, to note that we have partnered with, that we support. Um, and this marks our 21st year of doing that. Uh, so it's been a, a long standing relationship. Uh, and many, many of the kids that have been involved in camp, Matt, 
when I was a middle school director, was involved in our middle school ministry. He's gone on to be a huge blessing to our church. Uh, and so there, there's a two-way relationship here to where we certainly want to step out and love and serve, but the blessings that are coming back on us as a church body from these kids because of the investment that God's people have made in them is just, it's tremendous. So I just want to highlight that. We wanted to highlight that together as a church family to celebrate, but also to invite you to be a part of it, to think about how you might want to be a part of what God's doing through World Family Kids Camp. Uh, what's happened over the last few years is we've tried to grow that relationship. We've uh, increased the impact by providing small scholarships to, uh, to families that can't make it or to kids that have aged out to help them continue to be involved after high school. Uh, and so if you want to be involved in that, there's, there's different ways you can do it. And one of the most prominent and important is to join the, the camp counseling team. You don't need to be an expert in anything to be a counselor to these kids. You just need to be someone who's willing to give you time and your energy. Many of those people have said in our congregation, they'll be out in our lobby. You can talk to them, hear stories from them of, of the impact that God has made in their lives and in, in kids' lives. Um, but if you want to learn more about that, I really would encourage you to stop by our uh, Royal Family desk that's out there in the lobby, because this just is a tremendous ministry, and it really, friends, family, it needs your investment, because God has called you, he's called me, he's called all of us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people just like Matt, to kids just like Matt. So uh, join me just in praying for that ministry as we uh, begin our sermon today, just that God would move in that, move in our hearts as a church to continue supporting and loving that but also uh, that God would work in the lives of these kids. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift that you've given us as a church to be a part of what you're doing in the lives of kids like Matt. God, I pray that we would continue to follow you here. Lord, that you would continue to raise up new counselors and leaders and supporters. And God, that in 21 more years, we'll be able to continue telling stories like Matt's of the ways in which you have impacted and transformed the lives of at-risk kids because of the work of Royal Family Kids Camp. Lord, we trust these things to you, God. We ask you blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series this morning on praying with Paul. Uh, and uh, this week, I've been thinking about this week's passage and, and uh, what Paul tells us in Philippians. Uh, and really, at the heart of this passage is a story about a partnership that lasts. Partnership that lasts. Now, uh, when I was thinking about that, my mind inevitably went to a period in my life when I had something that didn't last, and that was my time as a French horn player. If you don't know what a French horn is, you're cooler than I am. This is a French horn. Uh, now, as an adult, I understand that that's kind of cool, but when I was 10, that was not cool. That was a reputation killer right there, okay? <laughs> so I... I uh, when I was in elementary school, the, the, this guy came in, they did a, a kind of a test because uh, it was an orchestra that would give you the instrument for you to come and be a part. They would just kind of test your musical ability. And if you were good enough, they would give you the instrument and you could come and join their orchestra. So it was, was, I didn't even have to pay that much. I was invited to be a part of an orchestra. So I, uh, I managed to test in. I started playing the French horn. It's going okay. But then one week, they say, you know what? We, we want to upgrade you. We want to upgrade you to the tuba, okay? Now, let me show you a picture. This is, this is not what they wanted me to play, to be clear. But I wanted to show you this because that's what it felt like at 10 years old. If my reputation was in danger from a French horn, I would never get married if I played that instrument, okay? That's what I felt like as a kid, right? I was like, I'm done for. And I was already a nerd, so I, I needed to avoid things like this, right? So I gave up on my hobby playing this 
quite quickly, okay? Because it, it just, it wasn't for me. I wasn't as excited about it. I didn't feel like I was getting much out of it. Now as an adult, I realized that was something I could have invested in and it would have been incredible for someone to have gifted me something like that and to, to continue in it. How different it would make me as a person. I, I want you to know today, church, Jesus doesn't give up on you like a hobby. Jesus doesn't look at you as something that he's going to spend a little bit of time on. And then if it doesn't work out the way that he wants, if he's not getting out of it what he desires, he doesn't drop you like a young kid might with an instrument. In fact, what Paul is going to tell us here in Philippians is that the God that called you, that began work in you, is going to stay with you right through to the end. He's committed to you. You need to know that deep down in your soul. You need to know that God doesn't drop you. And the only way to know that is through prayer. As we've been going through these prayers that Paul has prayed in different letters in the New Testament, I, I think there's been some clear themes that have come up in Ephesians and Colossians. It's that God wants us to know, or Paul wants us to know God. He wants us to be very clear about who he is and who he's not. To do away with silly ideas about God, to know the true God that's revealed himself in Christ. And in fact, Paul, even though he's writing to churches that are going through persecution, financial loss, pain, disease, all manner of circumstances, he makes very little mention of those circumstances and rather he prays that in the midst of those things, they would know God better. Because he's one of the most important things about prayer that I hope you've picked up if you've been with us the last few weeks, is that the, the real heart of prayer is not about getting something, it's about knowing someone. Prayer is not about getting something, it's about knowing someone. That's the heart of what prayer is. And it's why Paul prays most often for the churches that they would know God better. And if you know him better, it will transform your life. It will strengthen you. So today we're going to look at Paul's prayer in the letter of Philippians. His prayer for the Philippian church and what he asks God on their behalf. Things that he prays for them. And I think there's three things here that Paul prays that helps the Philippians and ultimately helps us to see the God who's at work in us for the long haul. The God who's committed to us for the long haul. Those things are a prayer of partnership, of confidence, and an abounding love. So let's dive right into a prayer of partnership. Prayer of partnership. One of the best things that have ever happened to me without question is that I married Janae Griffiths. Because she enhanced everything about Andrew Griffiths, okay? I was under the impression that, and unfortunately, because I came here from England, and I had an accent, and people trapped me like I was cool, I had gained this false notion that actually I was kind of cool. But Janae brought me back down to earth. She helped me out with that. <laughs> so when I married Janae, I was enhanced in many ways. But one of the, the most entertaining and enjoyable is that there was this trivia night that we would uh, go to sometimes on Baylor University's campus. And uh, I was really good at the movies and the, the sci-fi nerdy stuff. But that's about it. There was not much else I could contribute. But Janae was good at lots of things. And particularly, she was that person who could name like the capital of every country in the world. I don't know how she discovered those things, but she did. And so we formed a partnership together to play in this trivia night. And all of a sudden, now I am starting to get cool. Because now we're doing way better than we've ever done, right? Now think about other partnerships that you know of. Think about partnerships that you may have heard of, right? Like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Right? We hear a lot about Michael Jordan. I heard about him all the way back in England growing up. I didn't really hear much about Scottie Pippen. But if you were to ask Michael Jordan about the impact of his career, I'm sure Scottie Pippen's name would get mentioned. Because it was their partnership together that made them so effective. Or maybe if you talk to someone like Steve Jobs, who founded Apple. We know Steve Jobs' name. He's a pretty big name. 
biopics made about him, but if you were to ask Steve Jobs about the impact that was made in the company, Apple, that it was founded, he wouldn't be able to talk about it without mentioning Steve Wozniak, his partner who helped him get it started, who was with him in the garage, making him better. Together, they worked together to achieve a common goal, and they became better at it. And Paul begins his prayer for the Philippians. He begins his conversation with the Philippians by talking about his partnership with them. He prays with joy because of a partnership that had blessed him. This is what he says in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's really emotional language. Often you'll read parts of the Bible that Paul has written and you're like, is this guy dead inside? He's kind of, you know, he's very theological and serious. And yet in Philippians, you read about Paul, it's really emotional, filled with joy, praying all the time with joy and thankfulness. And if you know the story of the Philippians, it's actually kind of shocking to hear this from Paul because the Bible records his first meeting with the Philippians in Acts 16. In Acts 16, this is what we're told. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, if I was to fast forward just a little bit in Acts 16, here's where things end up once Paul reaches Philippi. This is Acts 16, 22 through 23. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. That's the story of Paul and Philippi. That's how it starts. Why would this Paul pray with joy and thankfulness for the Philippians? That must have been one of the worst times of his life. Shows up in a city with a message of hope and grace and wants to tell them the message of Jesus. Ends up being thrown into a prison and before that, stripped naked and beaten with rods. That's not a great experience. So why? Why does he pray with joy? Why is he so thankful? Why a joyous remembrance? Because of a partnership in the gospel. See, what I left out in amongst that is that in amongst those experiences, God did some amazing things in Philippi. First of all, when Paul was preaching, he met a woman named Lydia. Preached the gospel to her. Talked to her about Jesus. And Lydia ended up giving her life to Jesus. Believing in this gospel. Lydia's whole family came along with her. Another kind of strange incident that happened along the way is that there was a a slave girl, and as Paul was preaching, every day she would come by and kind of make a ruckus. And so one day Paul prayed for her and set her free from a a demonic oppression. But her masters were really angry about this. Masters were really angry at what God was doing in their slave's life. And so they were the ones that kind of instigated everything that happened with Paul. And then once Paul is in prison, after he's been beaten, he's held there in the stocks, And there's an earthquake. God sends an earthquake and opens the doors of the prison. And the jailer runs. He's worried that everyone has left the prison. And then he sees Paul still there. Hasn't run out on him. He was actually going to take his own life. He was so worried because if the the prisoners had been set free, he would have been in a lot of trouble. And so instead he turns to Paul and he says, tell me about this God that's done this thing that would make you stay in your prison cell. He becomes a believer. So God is doing important work, gospel work in the city of Philippi, even despite some of the painful and difficult things that Paul experienced there. And even after Paul leaves Philippi, they continue to remain in a partnership with Paul. 
they continue to have a shared commitment to the message of the gospel, to the work of the gospel, and to embody the gospel. Philippians shared the belief with Paul that Jesus had given himself for them, to be everything to them, to remake them, renew them. They were committed to this belief that Jesus was the Son of God, sent into the world to redeem us, and to set right the things that were so broken. Started with Lydia and moved on to a nameless slave girl, onto a Roman jailer. But even more than that, their belief starts working its way out in how they live. They wanted to continue to support Paul. And in fact, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 4, some really interesting things about the Philippians. Things, in fact, that Paul very rarely says about any other church that we hear about in the New Testament. This is what he says. He says in Philippians 4, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What Paul's saying is no one gave to him financially. No one invited him to come back. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is saying, even when I was absent from you, you remained a partner with me. You sent gifts for me across the Middle East, which remember, these cities are not right next door to each other. Paul is traveling around the entire Middle East, and the church in Philippi, even though it's small, is continuing to give what they have to support Paul, continuing to want to hear from him, even so much so that they send this guy Epaphroditus while Paul has ended up in a prison in Rome. He ends up in prison a lot. And while he's there, they send Epaphroditus to bring an offering, to bring him supplies, food, money for his ministry, different things like this. And here's what Paul says about Epaphroditus. He says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister my needs. So what he's saying is, you sent me Epaphroditus, I want to send him back to you. He goes on to say, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I'm not really sure why he nearly died. I don't know whether it was just because the journey was difficult, obviously much more difficult back then. I don't know whether it was because of persecution. I don't know whether Epaphroditus put himself at risk by associating himself with a prisoner of Rome. But I know he did it. And Paul is saying, this man risked his life for me. This is how, this is how much partnership meant to the people in Philippi. It wasn't just that they agreed with Paul that he thought he had a nice message. It wasn't just that they thought he was a compelling and interesting guy. They were willing to risk their lives, their resources, everything they had to be in partnership with him for the sake of this message that he had. They wanted to remain in life together. They believed the message. They supported the ministry and they embodied the gospel because even in a prison cell, they are breathing life into Paul by the way that they love him. And so this message that they talk about They're embodying it. Paul is seeing the very Jesus that he talks about because of the way that they are loving him. That's why gospel partnership is so important. But at the same time, a gospel partnership that brings joy, that brings thankfulness, also brings cost and inconvenience. Gospel partnerships are not partnerships of convenience, and so they're costly. And because they are costly, often in our lives, when we are presented with the opportunity to be a part of a gospel partnership, a partnership in which we live together, serve together, work together for the sake of the gospel, 
we would rather choose consumer Christianity. A Christianity that isn't as inconvenient, that isn't as costly. Dallas Willard, a pastor once said, consumer Christianity is now normative. The consumer Christian is one who utilizes the grace of God for forgiveness and the services of the church for special occasions, but does not give his or her life and innermost thoughts, feelings, and intentions over to the kingdom of the heavens. Such Christians are not inwardly transformed and not committed to it. What he's saying is there's two choices in the church. There's gospel partnerships or there's consumer Christianity. Gospel partnerships cost you something. It's inconvenient. It can be challenging. But they bring deep joy and thankfulness. Or there's consumer Christianity, which provides you with something really good in the moment, but doesn't transform you, doesn't change you. And that's why Paul celebrates in his prayers gospel partnerships, this relationship that the Philippians have built with him. Because not only are they being blessed by his ministry, not only is God growing his kingdom there, but Paul in a prison cell in Rome is being strengthened because of his relationship with them. So if we are praying with Paul, how should this transform our prayer lives? If we're gonna pray with him the way that he did for the Philippians. First, I want you to think about those that have impacted your faith journey those that you have been in gospel partnership with. I want you to let God develop a thankfulness in you for them. The rich things that God has done in your life because of their love for you. But more than that, I want you to pray for more partnerships like this, more gospel partnerships in your life, more opportunities that God would give you more opportunities to serve with someone, to walk alongside someone, to share every dimension of life with them and to go through the inconvenience and the cost and the challenge with them. Pray that you would become that for someone else. Pray that someone else who might be in desperate need of a gospel partnership, someone who can help them, who can walk with them, encourage them. Pray that God would change you and transform you to be the kind of person that would do that. Pray that you would not be a consumer, but that you would be a partner that God would transform your heart as he did the Philippians to want to believe alongside others, support others, and embody the gospel to them. Second thing in this prayer that we can take notice of is a prayer of confidence. Prayer of confidence. I love building Legos with my kids. Uh, At the earliest possible age, I introduced them to the Legos because really I wanted to play with the Legos and they were a valid excuse. Uh, And what would always happen is, uh, when we would start, they would be really excited about it. They would dive in, they would want to build it all, and inevitably they get to a point where they turn and they say, Dad, I I can't do it. Can you do it for me? And I'd be like, yes, this is the hour that I have waited for. So I build the Lego for them. But then what happens afterwards is that their friends come over and they say, do you see my new Lego set that I built? And I was like, hold up, who built that Lego set? So we've got a display case now of things that have been half-built by me. They're starting to now do it on their own, which is a little unfortunate for me because I liked looking at the work that I'd done. (laughs) But I want to ask you a question. Who's doing the work of transformation in your heart? Who's the one that's building the transformation in your life? Is it you or is it God? Where do you derive your hope and your encouragement from? Where's your conviction that you are going to grow and that you are going to thrive because of your work or because of God's work? Paul says this really interesting thing in Philippians as he's continuing this, as he's telling them about his prayers for them. He says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul had a really deep confidence about the future of this church that he'd left behind. Even knowing the kinds of things that would happen to people who would believe in Christ in Philippi, he had a confidence because He knows the God who began the work and he knows the God who continues the work and who ultimately will finish the work. He knows the God who began and the God who finishes. The God who begins the work. Isn't that interesting that so often we attempted to believe that the reason why God is at work in us is because we've prayed a prayer or we've had a particular change in mind and we've now made ourselves presentable to God. We've made ourselves interesting to God. So God wants to come and do some work in us. It couldn't be further from the truth. If we go back to Acts 16, when Paul first arrives in the city of Philippi, here's what we're told in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So whose work started first, Paul's or God's? The Lord opened her heart. And Paul spoke into that. But God was already doing something in Lydia's life when Paul arrived. God saved Lydia, not Paul. God freed Paul from jail, not Paul. God sustained the Philippian church in Paul's absence because this is God's work, not Paul's. Paul was there for a season. He was a partner with God, but this is God's work, not Paul's. And you need to know that. You need to know that God began the work in you. God begins the work in you, maybe even today, because of his love for you, because of who he is. You are not the spark of spiritual growth in yourself. If you're in a dry season, if you're struggling, it's not up to you to get things started. It's up to you to remember the one who gets things started. Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This whole message, again, written by Paul in Ephesians, is you need to understand the God who's at work in you, the God who's coming to work in you. He begins it. He gets things started. Faith is not your idea. It's his work. Do you pray thankfulness that God began a work in you? Do you say, God, thank you for finding me, for calling me, for seeing me where I was? for making yourself known in my life. I'll be honest, one of the things I'm most grateful for, but I do not pray gratitude for enough, is the fact that I never went looking for God in my life. You might be surprised to hear that as a pastor now, preaching behind a pulpit. I was not interested in finding God. In fact, when I was younger, I wanted to get away from that. I saw my mom in that and my sister in that, and for some reason, God still chased me down. And he worked in my heart, and he began something in me that he's continued to this day. Praise God indeed. Faith is also not a handoff. God's not just the God who begins, he's the God who finishes. In Philippians 2, so the next chapter from what we're reading today, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Faith is not a handoff in a team race. God isn't getting you a head start. He's saying, okay, he's the starter kit. Now go for me. Be a really good Christian. Be a good person. God is saying, no, I'm the runner in this race. And what I want you to do is to climb on my back and let me run. Trust me. Put your faith in me. If you are carrying the burden of your spiritual health, which I'm sure if you're anything like me, you're tempted to do on a number of occasions. This morning, I want you to let Paul's prayer remind you to lay it down at the feet of the cross. And instead of trying to chug your way through spiritual growth, to lay hold of the one who will carry you through it. Now, you might be tempted to say, yeah, but what you just said is that I have to work out my salvation with fear and trouble. That's what Paul said. You've got to work it out. Well, God is at work in you, and what you're working out is your faith in him. What you're working out is to trust him, to believe what he said to you, to trust. So if you want to grow in generosity, for example, if you're saying, Father, I want you to do a work of growing generosity in me, trust in him in that. If you have trust that he's going to work in you, it means you've got to put it into practice. You're not waiting for a magical feeling of generosity to overwhelm you. You're saying, God's going to be at work in me, so I'm going to get down to being generous because I know he's going to grow generosity in me. If you're asking him for patience, then the answer is not to say, okay, I'll wait until this magical, warm feeling of patience comes over me, but I'm going to trust that God will work in me, so I'm going to get down to it. I'm going to start loving other people, serving other people that might otherwise cause me to be impatient because I'm going to trust that God will work patience into me. Some of us spend so long in our lives sitting on the bench waiting for the magical moment to happen instead of trusting that God will be at work in us if we follow him, if we trust him, if we cling to him. Work hard because you've been worked on. One of the most encouraging things that Paul says here is he says, you are partakers with me. You see, in the same grace that's holding me together in this prison cell, that's allowing me to be beaten with rods and to still continue being thankful, that's the same grace that's available to you. And he's not just saying that to the Philippians, he's saying that to all of us. The same grace that Paul had experienced in his life, that transformed him, is available to us. Let's avail ourselves of it. Let's throw ourselves into it. Let's say, gosh, we can trust the God who worked in Paul to work in us. He who began a good work in us, he will carry us to the finish line. He'll continue what he started. Last thing that I want to mention to you this morning is a prayer of abounding love. Prayer of abounding love. This is how Paul kind of closes his initial prayer for the church in Philippi. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's seen the love in the church of Philippi. He knows how deep and rich and wonderful it is, and yet he says, I'm praying it would grow. I'm praying you'd have even more of what I've already seen, that it would abound and it would bound and abound. Because love for Paul, is not, it's not just some nice, warm feeling. He knows it's more than that. Notice what he says. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more, more with knowledge and all discernment. So this is a very specific type of love that Paul wants the church to grow in. Not some nice warm feeling. It's a love that understands and knows the highest good and desires that good for others. It's a knowledgeable love, a discerning love. A friend told me recently that he's noticed a value in our culture where we 
look for experience over outcome. We value experience over outcome. The present moment is something that we, we seek after, we love. We want to feel good right now. And we don't really think too much about where it leads to, what the outcome is. And in fact, the opposite is also true. That if we know the outcome is going to involve some difficult things, even if it's a fantastic outcome, our culture kind of trains us to say, I'm going to opt out of this fantastic outcome because it's going to lead to some difficult experience. So we treasure experience over outcome. We value it more than long term. And this, is, this has happened for a number of reasons in our culture, I think. We could all brainstorm reasons why. It's technology that moves things fast and makes things immediate. It's a whole fast food culture where we want to eat quickly. We don't want to wait for the meal. It's like when I'm driving around on a Friday afternoon thinking about eating lunch, and I'm like, should I go get something healthy or should I go to Taco Bell? There'll be an immediate experience of joy and then a long and painful afternoon. <laughs> But if our long-term goal is to grow in love, then that means present experiences cannot be more important than the outcome. Present experiences cannot be more important. Love doesn't just want you to feel good for a moment. It wants you to feel good for a long time. It wants you to thrive, to have strength, to have hope. Think about it with kids, right? Kids will say, I want, I want cookies. I want five cookies right now. And as a parent, you know the most loving thing is to say, that's not good for you. <clears throat> It's going to feel good for five minutes and then it's going to hurt. Or a kid that wants to play in the middle of the street. It's not loving for me as a parent to say, well, I know you're having fun there, but please continue. The right thing for me as a father is to say, that's not good for you. That's dangerous. Come out of that. That's real, genuine love. That's how Paul describes love. He says in his letter to 1 Corinthians, the famous passage when he's talking about what love is, gets read at weddings a lot. It says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love cares more about what's right, the highest good. It goes on to say to the church in Rome, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And so genuine love cares about what really is good. True gospel love cares about what's right, what's pure, that's the kind of love that God has for us. It seeks our absolute highest good. I want you to know that no one wants good for you more than God. It just might not look the way that you want it to, but it is the highest good. God only desires good for people, the absolute highest good. What we can assume is good for others might not necessarily be good. And so if we abound in love, if we grow in love, we want to understand what is good. Paul wants us to abound in love, and that means growing in wisdom and discernment. Goes on to say in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We've got to learn to see what genuine love is, by knowing God better, by focusing on the good things that he's doing in our life. Really, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, well, what is that? That's God himself. He is just. He is true. He is honorable. He is pure. He is lovely. He is commendable, excellent, all of it. How much time do we spend thinking about him, though? How much time do we really let him take up in our lives? What fills your time? What do you reflect on most often? What is it that consumes your thought life most often? 
What is it that you give most importance? It's so vital to healthy Christian life that we spend time meditating. We sit down, think, and dwell on who God is. What the things that he's done, reminding ourselves of his promises. I was really convicted preparing the sermon this week, thinking about how easy it is for me to think about Bible things, God things, Jesus things, church things. Swells around in my head. But do I really sit down? Do I re- am, I, am I just filling my head with noise or am I really reflecting? Am I really sitting down and letting what God is saying go deep down into my heart so that it's changing the way that I'm living? Sometimes not, unfortunately. You can be the best Bible scholar in the world, but if the information is not filtering out and being put into practice, you haven't really thought about it. Because what Paul says is he says, think about these things, what you have learned, received, heard, seen, practice them. Practice them. We've got to learn to recognize that it's a choice what we spend our mental energy on and what we think about, and it's a choice whether or not those things are going to make it into our hands and our feet. It's hard work. Things will compete for space. You'll be consumed with things that are going on at work, things that are going on in the family, things that are going on in the country. You will be tempted to think about everything but. And so that's why we've got to come to God in prayer and saying, Father, things are competing for my mental attention. And I know I need to think about you. I need to give you the mental space so that I can put love into practice. If I'm honest, even preaching that to you, it feels hard. It feels hard to become the kind of person who's really gonna be fixed on this, who's gonna jump into a gospel partnership, who is going to be committed to remembering that God began this in me, that he's gonna complete this in me, and it feels really difficult to become the kind of person who's gonna practice what I preach. So how do we do it? How do we do it? The answer is to look at the one who's already done all these things for you. Think about Jesus with me for a minute. We're told in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. When Jesus came into this world, he wasn't looking for a quick experience. In fact, he knew that his entire life would be, as Isaiah prophesied, it would be a sorrowful life, the amount of sorrows. And yet for the joy set before him, for the outcome, he endured the experience. He said, even though in the immediate, things are gonna look bleak, this is gonna give the highest good to mankind for me to live my life for them, to lay my life down for them, to endure something as horrific as a cross for them. And he didn't come to that cross when we were in the right space for it. He died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to be presentable, to finally listen and say, okay, now, now I'll come and live amongst you and do for you what you can't do for yourself because you've shown me that you're gonna listen. No, he went in a season where very few listened. He still did it and he finished it. The best way for you to grow in your faith, to, to grow in your prayer life is to cling to the one who's praying for you right now who is ready to do his work. He tells us to come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. Dear church, your life in Christ does not rest 
on you. It rests on him. The transformation that you're seeking in your life is not in your hands, it's in his. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what a gospel partnership is really all about. And so my invitation to you is to come to God in prayer, to ask him to be for you what he was for Paul, what he was for Philippi, to ask him to help you see that he has begun the work and to ask him to let him finish the work. He who called you is faithful and he will do it. So let's pray to him. Father God, thank you for this chance this morning as a church to reflect on the God who finishes his work, the God who causes us to abound in love with all wisdom and discernment, the God who himself cared so deeply about our highest good, about the outcome of highest good that he was willing to endure the experience of the cross. Lord, I pray that the gospel message of the God who went to the cross for us would melt our hearts and change us, transform us, and set us free from the burdens that we carry and the aches that we have. Lord, we trust you, we look to you. Do you work in us, we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. I hope that it's blessed you, encouraged you. I hope that you have been reminded of the God who began the good work in you and who will see you through in the end. If there's any way we can pray for you, that's what we're here for. Please come let us know. We have prayer team members available. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you however we can. We want to be a family together. And if you are new with us, want to learn more, I would love to meet you as well. Remember to stop by our welcome desk. Just two quick reminders. If you want to join us for our Insight Reading Group in February, February 15th is when we start, make sure to register for that. Uh, or stop by our welcome desk. They can make sure to mark your name down. If you, even if you've already done that, if you could go back again and just make sure that we've got your information. And then lastly as well, we'd love for you to join us for game night this coming Friday here at the campus. Uh, so make sure you uh, hang on to that note from your bulletin as well. But for now, let me offer this benediction to you, taken from First Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. In his name that we go, amen.